Okay, hello and welcome to the Petty Profit Podcast. My name is Joel Berry. Glad you are listening today. And I have to start off by apologizing for uh, the tardiness of the episode this week. I started preparation for this episode with an idea, and I really fell down a rabbit hole for several days with this thing and, and came to find out that there's a lot more information here and a lot more for me to talk about than I can fit in a single 15 to 20 minute episode. And so I was really struggling with how to present this information and how to uh, really boil it down to what the essentials were. And I'm, I'm in the end, I'm not going to try to do that. I, I'm going to take what I've learned here and I might turn it into a limited series or, or uh, maybe a, a three or four part uh, study of this and the history of this because it really is fascinating and, and really is shocking some of the things that I found. And you probably know uh, by now, by the title of the episode, I decided a couple weeks ago to read through the Roe versus Wade decision. You know, and the reason for that is it's it was such a controversial decision and it, it was such a consequential decision made in 1973. And it is still the subject of so much debate and so much turmoil in our culture. It really, it split our country in two. It really did. In 1973, when Roe versus Wade was decided, something very profound happened in our country. And the debate has not died down. It has not slowed down. It has only gotten more intense as the decades have passed. And so I decided, you know, I should probably read the Roe versus Wade decision for myself and, and see what it says. Let's look into this, you know, instead of trusting what people have to say about it. Let, let's find out for myself. And anyone can do this. You can go into the Supreme Court website. You can look at all of the case law. Not that that <laughs> is going to be everyone's cup of tea. I, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a bit of a nerd. Uh, I probably should have been a detective or a lawyer. I, I really enjoyed digging into this. I went line by line. And um, I even studied the case law that is cited here. I studied the citations that they use to back up some of their claims. And again, way too much information to just condense down in a neat 15 to 20 minute podcast. So what I'm going to do today is I'm just going to bring you a couple of my thoughts, a couple of my impressions that came out of this experience. And I'm going to give you some of the more shocking things that I found, some of the more disturbing things that I found, because this decision, this Roe versus Wade decision, it was worse than I thought. And, and I, I'm a pro-life guy. I knew it was bad, but it was worse than I thought. It was shocking how bad it was. And so without going too deeply into this, I'm just going to give you a, a few of my thoughts. So I, you know, I spent a few days reading this first. You know, I highlighted the interesting parts. I, I looked up the backup at case law and, and read some of the, uh, the papers that are cited here and a few impressions I'm going to give to you. So the first impression I want to give to you about the Roe versus Wade decision is the undercurrent of agenda throughout this decision. And an agenda that has no bearing on the constitutional law, what the law says, or how the judges should be deciding something. For some reason, this agenda is inserted in here. And you can tell it's important enough to the judges because it's, it's in the introductory paragraphs and it's in the ending paragraphs. It's like bookends onto this decision. And I want to just kind of touch on them first. So, so you have to remember, in 1973, we're on the heels of the sexual revolution. Where we are in the midst of the overpopulation scare. I mean, there is 
mass hysteria about over fears of overpopulation. And for more on that, you can listen to, actually, you can listen to episode one of this podcast, Agent Smith and Earth Worship, uh, for more on the overpopulation scare of this era. And you can tell, you can tell, you can see the panic and see some of the cultural influences that affected the thinking of the judges here. And so the decision opens up, it kind of lays the groundwork, it kind of introduces the problem, but then it it adds this little tagline that kind of made me, you know, raise an eyebrow here. It said, in addition, population growth, pollution, poverty, and racial overtones tend to complicate and not to simplify the problem. So here they are, they're acknowledging the cultural forces that are at work here, and that's troublesome because the, such forces, such cultural influences should have no impact, should not have any say in how a judge decides the law. The law is the law. It is the legislature's job to react to cultural forces and the needs of the country and, and legislate. That is not the job of the judge. And so it's curious here that they insert this, this clause at the beginning, but then it's also at the end. You read the end of the decision after they've created their um, rationale and they've, they've given their decision. They say that this decision, we believe, meets the demands of the profound problems of the present day. Again, that is not a judge's job to meet the demands of the profound problems of the present day. The, the judge's job is to interpret the law as written. And so right off the bat, you have a, a bit of a, a troubling tone that is set, that you can tell that it is not just the law they are looking at here. They are looking at the cultural influences, among other things, and it gets worse. The second impression I want to give is that they try to paint this picture of, a, of diverse thinking on this issue, that there is very little consensus on the issue of abortion. And in order to do that, they hearken back to the ancient Greeks and Romans. They hearken back to medieval superstitions uh, about uh, the idea of the quickening. They believed that life began when the mother first felt that kick. They thought that was not a kick, but rather a quickening, life, the soul entering the baby. And so they, they hearken back to all these ancient ideas, the, you know, the Sumerians, the, the Romans. Again, which, why would that pertain to our modern liberal democracy and, and the progress that we've made? I, it's, it's curious that they bring it up here, but they're still laying the groundwork. The other thing they bring up here is the Hippocratic Oath. Now, the Hippocratic Oath has been the gold standard for medical ethics for almost 2,000 years, over 2,000 years, really, and it forbids abortion. And so they question this, and they say, well, you know, abortion violates the Hippocratic Oath, but then they say that, you know, the ancient Romans, they didn't really follow the Hippocratic Oath, so we shouldn't look at the Hippocratic Oath as an absolute standard of ethics. <laughs> so, the, again, hearkening back to ancient people and their barbaric practices. I mean, the Romans would commonly, if they if they didn't want a baby, they would just leave it in an alleyway to die. And and in the first and second centuries, Christians started walking around, picking up and adopting and saving these babies, and the culture started to change towards one that valued life. So it's it's odd here that the Supreme Court actually harkens back to these barbaric times 
as a way to justify this idea that the Hippocratic Oath is no is not an ap- absolute standard, that there are people who disagree with it. At least there were people 2,000 years ago who disagreed with it, so, you know, it's not a universal standard. It's, it's, it's really bizarre. But the most disturbing thing about this whole thing, the most disturbing thing about the Roe versus Wade decision to me, beyond the, the, you know, the legislation from the bench, the finding of the right to privacy in the 14th Amendment, which doesn't exist there, the most disturbing thing is when they start to get into the science of embryology and when human life begins, because it quickly becomes apparent that the justices here are out of their element. And that makes sense, right? You know, judges, they know case law, they know common law, history and philosophy. They're well-read, they read, they read a lot of books, but they're not medical doctors. They're not biologists. They're not scientists. And it really shows. And for a decision that should so heavily lean on the scientific facts here and the latest medical knowledge, it's shocking how ignorant these judges prove to be about the science of embryology. And and granted, in 1973, the science of embryology was not very advanced then either. I mean, the, the sonogram was yet to hit the scene, and there was a huge gap in our understanding of what was going on in the womb after conception. And so, scientifically, this decision is very outdated. Very outdated. So, when the decision gets into the science, it it starts by saying this, and this is very interesting. This is something that's very little known about this decision. There is a sunset clause in Roe v. Wade. Within the Roe v. Wade decision is a clause that is meant to end the decision and completely collapse it. And it reads like this, in support of this, They outline at length and in detail the well-known facts of fetal development. If the suggestion of personhood is established, the appellate's case, of course, collapses. In other words, if it somehow becomes proven that human life begins at conception and that that human life is a person, which it is, it's self-evident that it is, then Roe versus Wade is over. All you have to do is legally establish personhood and the case collapses. So what they then go on to do is try to muddy the waters and undermine the idea of personhood. And what they start by doing is they say that the Constitution does not define person in so many words. They say, well, the Constitution doesn't specifically say that an unborn baby is a person. Well, (laughs) the Constitution doesn't specifically say that a woman is a person either, or that a, a black person is a person. The Constitution uses the word person many times, but who is and who is not a person is completely self-evident. It is not up for the law to determine personhood. Our rights are endowed by the Creator. Our personhood comes from the Creator. And so the state has no legal right to define who is a person and who is not. If you are a human being, you are a person. And so they, they use this kind of weasley little loophole that, well, the Constitution doesn't specifically say that an unborn baby is a person. So, they, you know, then they, for a, a brief second, they put their originalist hat on and pretend like they're originalists and say, well, it doesn't say that they're a person, so we can't, by law, say that an unborn baby is a person because the Constitution doesn't specifically say it, even though it's self-evident. But I haven't gotten to the worst part. The worst part is this. The court concluded by saying that we do not need to resolve 
the difficult question of when life begins, because there is no consensus on when life begins. Well, that is a lie. Because scientifically speaking, there is complete consensus on when human life begins. And if you ask any scientist, any embryologist, any biologist, they will say that human life begins at conception. <laughs> and in order to justify their assertion that there is disagreement, that there is a wide variety of opinion on when life be begins, they hearken back to, again, the ancients, <laughs> the Stoics, they say. The Stoics uh, don't believe that uh, you're a baby until live birth. They say that, you know, the medieval Christians didn't believe that you were a baby until quickening. So in order to, even though science, our modern science has now settled this and is completely in agreement on when life begins, the court still asserts that there is a wide variety of thinking on this issue by looking back at ancient medieval people. That's like saying, well, there's a, there's a, a huge variety of, of thinking on whether the earth is the center of the universe, um, you know, look back at, you know, the, the medieval scientists and Copernicus and, um, you know, a lot of people have thought that the earth is the center of the universe. Well, they don't think that anymore. <laughs> and that's the thing. They, you know, scientists don't think that life begins at birth or life begins at quickening anymore. Science has settled this fact, yet the court, for some reason, pretends as if there is wide disagreement on this fact. <laughs> and in one brief moment, the court does admit that here we are in 1973 with our, our amassed knowledge that the church and the physicians both agree that life begins at conception. They, they do acknowledge that, but then they throw in a wrinkle. This is this is the crux of everything, okay? So this is the thing that really disturbed me. This is the thing that was really appalling to me, okay? They say that the church and many physicians believe that life begins at conception. However, substantial problems for precise definition of this view are posed, however, by new embryological data that purport to indicate that conception is a process over time rather than an event. Well, who's ever heard that before? Conception is not an event, but rather a process over time? Based on new embryological data? What in the world is that? So I looked at the citation, okay? There are two people that they cite to back up their claim that new embryological data suggests that conception is a process rather than a singular event, okay? The first person that they cite is a guy named Roderick Gorney, who is a psychiatrist. He's not an embryologist. He's not a biologist. He's a psychiatrist that focuses on human touch and sexuality, and he's also a secular humanist who wrote a book called The Human Agenda about the evolution of moral values. And this idea of conception being a process over time rather than an event comes from this paper called The New Biology and the Future of Man, which is just an excerpt from Roderick Gorney's Secular Humanist Manifesto, The Human Agenda. Okay, so it's not based on embryological data. <laughs> it's not based on any sound science. It's based on the opinion written in a secular humanist manifesto. But their second citation is even worse. The second citation that they use to suggest that conception is not an event 
comes from a guy named Donald W. Brody, who is not a doctor. He's a lawyer. And he wrote a paper called The New Biology in the Prenatal Child, where he quoted a guy by the name of Glanville Williams. Now, Glanville Williams said this, that the moment of conception is a figment of the imagination. That quote by Glanville Williams comes from a paper that he wrote for the Eugenics Review. Glanville Williams was a prominent eugenicist. And so here you have the court undermining the sound scientific consensus of millions of biologists, undermining the sound science of conception and when life begins with the words of a secular humanist psychiatrist and a lawyer quoting a eugenicist. That is the embryo, quote-unquote embryological data they're talking about. It's appalling. Now, I wasn't surprised, I really wasn't surprised to find that the eugenicists had their hands all in this thing, and you can find out more about that if you listen to my podcast, uh, Science and Racism, um, a few episodes back, you can learn more about the background of the eugenics movement that led to the Roe versus Wade decision. But I couldn't believe this, that the Supreme Court, these, these supposed experts that are sitting in the clouds with their infinite wisdom from on high, ready to tell us what the moral law of our country is, they undermined the scientific consensus of virtually the entire scientific world with a couple of citations of junk science from a psychiatrist and a eugenicist. And today you have the left calling themselves the party of science, calling themselves the people who believe that our laws should be based on science, who make fun of Christians for being anti-science. These very people are the ones who are going out saying that Roe versus Wade is the law of the land, it's been decided, our right to abortion is enshrined in the Constitution now, and there's nothing you can say about it. Well, that's just wrong. These Supreme Court justices are not the final arbiters of all morality, and they're, they're really not that smart either. I mean, they're smart in one sense. They're smart in a very narrow scope of human knowledge in terms of the law and, and philosophy, but they don't know science, and it shows here, and it's really appalling. I mean, and our science has come so far now. We can see what is happening in the womb. We can actually see the moment of conception now. I mean, they've captured it on an electron microscope where when sperm meets egg, there is a discharge of zinc that creates a flash. In an instantaneous moment, that egg is activated and begins coding new DNA for a brand new person that has never been seen before and will never be seen again. Thanks to peer-reviewed scientific research, we now know that a little heart starts beating just 16 days after conception. The first brain waves are detected at 50 days. Every organ and fingerprint are present at 9 weeks. At 20 weeks, the unborn child has a fully developed nervous system and can feel the excruciating pain of an abortionist's cutting tools. At 25 weeks, a baby can dream and REM sleep and shows signs of recognizing and responding to his mother's voice. It's not up for scientific debate anymore. It's not up for religious or philosophical debate. Human life begins at conception. And the Constitution does not grant the state the right to define which human beings are persons and which human beings are not. And so for those reasons and, and many more, which maybe I'll get into as I turn this into a, maybe a longer series, I have no respect for the Roe versus Wade decision. It was a bad decision. It was based on junk science. 
and it's time for the pro-life movement to ignore it. Stop waiting for Roe versus Wade to be overturned. We defy the federal government in our states by legalizing marijuana, but we don't want to defy the federal government or the Supreme Court in our states by protecting the life of the unborn. It's time for us to ignore Roe versus Wade. We don't have to let seven eggheads in robes determine the national morality of our country. Over 60 million babies have been slaughtered since Roe versus Wade, and we don't have to put up with it anymore. Roe versus Wade was a bad decision. It was unconstitutional. It was horrendously unscientific, and it's a shame to our country. So <laughs> those are my thoughts on Roe versus Wade. Just my initial thoughts, you know, just dipping my toe in the water here. I can't imagine this uh, episode will be uh, terribly popular with the masses, but um, hey, you know, I I have fun with this. I got to get some important things out there every, every once in a while in the hopes that uh, two or three people listening to this will maybe be inspired by it and maybe that this idea will take hold. Maybe it'll grow. I don't know. I can pray at least. So my initial thoughts on Roe for your enjoyment. <laughs> Thank you for listening to my podcast today. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, we will be back later this week with another man hug. We're talking about Rhett and Link. Rhett and Link, uh, who were evangelical Christians and they deconverted and are now agnostics. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about the evangelical church, maybe where it's falling short. And I look forward to getting into that discussion with my brothers. In the meantime, if you like the content, uh, go over to iTunes and give me a five-star review. That would really help me bump up in the rankings and uh, reach more people. And uh, if you want to reach me, you can reach out at contact at thepettyprofit.com. And I would love to hear from you. And thank you again for listening. Love you all. And I will see you soon. Mm-hmm.